It's good to see you. Hey, um, if you have been paying attention, you'd know um, we have put the book of Romans down for a, a time, uh, and we are in the middle of a, a two-week, very, very practical, immensely practical kind of series. Um, before next week, we begin our look into um, Easter and the message of the cross. It's, good, it's, a good, it's a good use of our time, these, these couple of weeks, because, as, as you know, R- Romans is, is deep, heavy, rich food, um, and the message of Easter and the message of the cross is, is also um, is going to kind of provoke uh, a reaction in us, hopefully. Um, and so to spend this time looking at practical things, it's sort of a change of pace. It's also a very useful thing to do. It's, 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 it's an opportunity for us to look at the forest instead of the trees that we've been kind of digging our way through. Um, and we've been asking ourselves specifically the very practical question, how do I live a life which is pleasing to God? How do I live a life which is pleasing to God? We've said that we know, of course, um, hopefully you know, um, that Christians are pleasing to God, automatically. Um, That because you are in Christ, because the Father views you through the lens of Christ's finished work, you are pleasing to Him in much the same way that the Son is pleasing to Him. And yet, we also know that as reconciled people, as redeemed people, our obedience, our worship, our service to God brings Him joy brings him gladness. We are pleasing to him when we choose to please him. We want to live a life of serving the Lord with gladness, looking forward to our heavenly reward. This is the goal of our life, looking forward to our heavenly reward, storing up treasure where moth and rust can't destroy, where where, where flame cannot get involved. Last week, we asked ourselves, how do I serve God with my time? How do I make the best use of my time? limited though it is. This year we ask another uh, similarly practical question, which is this, how do I serve God with my stuff? I confused the soundies this morning because I created a PowerPoint and titled it Stuff, and they couldn't figure out that that was related to the sermon. My bad, my bad. How do I please God with my stuff? How do I serve the Lord with my stuff? Uh, It turns out, actually, that this is a really big theme in the Bible. If you were to do a keyword search in any sort of good Bible program and sort of search for money or or, or wealth or or, um, offerings or all those key sort of words, there is an abundance of information available to us. It turns out that this came up again and again and again um, throughout the whole Bible, especially in the life of Jesus. This is a thing that matters. This This is part of everyday worship. Um, there is an abundance of places we can turn to. In our preaching here, we believe in taking a, a main passage from the Bible and making that the main point of our sermon. So I've had to choose one. Um, so why don't you get it? You'll be glad to hear. And, and the parents said, amen, right? Um, why don't you get a finger into 2 Corinthians chapter 8, um, which we will read in just a moment. But before we get there, let's stop and ponder. Let's ask ourselves the question, if it wasn't for Jesus... If we were not people of faith, what is the purpose of stuff? What, what is our unbelieving culture's view of stuff? What, how would we view it if it, was not, if it was not viewed through the eyes of faith? What is the purpose of wealth in a worldview that has no God, or even a worldview that just keeps God off to the side and turns to Him when convenient? Wouldn't we have to say, the core belief, the, the most common belief that we would encounter would be, the, would be the belief that stuff is ultimately self-serving. Stuff is ultimately self-serving. My stuff is mine and it's for me. 
what is the purpose of stuff? Whatever I want it to be. For many people, wealth accumulation is the highest goal of their life. This is not just true now. This has been true for all people everywhere forever. This is a human trait. Stuff, wealth, is the road to a life of comfort and privilege and power, all the things that we like to have. Um, the have-nots, day in, day out, daydream about being the haves. Why? Because how much easier would life be? How much more comfortable? How much safer? How much more secure? The haves use their wealth to advance their place in the world and maintain their wealth, and we end up in a place where we see wealth as self-serving, whether we are the haves or the have-nots. Um, and in these things, we are not unique. This fundamental human trait, our attitude towards the material world, explains why so much of the Bible's teaching on wealth is, uh, comes across with such a negative voice. Have you noticed this as, as you're reading your Bibles, that whenever, it, whenever wealth comes up, it's kind of always in the negative, almost always in the negative? Material possessions, it turns out, comes to us hand in hand with a spiritual peril which we must arm ourselves against and that many have fallen into before us. It turns out that stuff can easily become a substitute God in your life. The definition of the word idol. For example, Jesus said that it is easier for a camel to fit through the tiny hole in a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In, 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 this, in this illustration, wealth is keeping a person away from coming to God, if you understand. It is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of the needle, just in case you've missed the hyperbole, very difficult. And if you do succeed, it's messy. You just do not want to be on the other side of that needle when, when the camel goes through. It's easier for that to take place, says Jesus, than it is for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. We see the example of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and, Jesus, and, and says to him, how, how is it that I can enter the kingdom of God? The rich man says. And Jesus says, well, you've got to fulfill the law. And the, the, the young man says, well, I've done all that since I was a kid. And Jesus, knowing full well that he hasn't done that, he says, okay, this is, there's one last thing that you've got to do. Get rid of all your stuff and come follow me. And then you can have the kingdom of heaven. We're told that the rich young ruler became very sad for he was extremely rich. His, his wealth prevented him from becoming a worshiper. Jesus warned us that the worship of money competes with our worship of God. He says it again in, the, in the, um, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You've got to choose. You can only have one Lord. Money can be your Lord, or God can be your Lord, but you can't have both. Your life cannot exist for the service of two masters. You're going to serve one, or you're going to serve the other. And he uses money as the example, because how often, how frequently, has the human race fallen into the trap of thinking that money is God? That money is God. It turns out that when we, when we come to faith in Jesus, our attitude towards material possessions must change. We, we, we must view our stuff, we must view our wealth through the lens of a worshipper now. And then, only then, when Jesus sits alone and unchallenged as the, the chief object of our worship, the one whom we serve, can stuff come to take its proper place in our life. We don't worship wealth, we worship God. 
This is what we see, a profound example of it, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. An example of the difference that faith makes in our attitudes towards our possessions. And it's one that I think we can all benefit by learning from um, the Corinthians, uh, the, the, the example given to us in 2 Corinthians here. Why don't we read the passage? It's a long one. I'm going to read a, a whole chapter of the Bible here, um, and then a little bit of chapter 9 as well, and then we'll talk about what it is that we've just read by way of understanding. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech, in knowledge and all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. So their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who put it into the heart of Titus, the same earnest care I have for you. For he has not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches to the glory of Christ. And so give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you um, to these men. Okay. A little snippet from chapter 9 as well. He's making the same point, verses 6 to 8. The point is this. 
Isn't it nice when he says that? It's like, okay, tune back in. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Clearly, there's a story going on behind here that we need to say, a bit, a bit of context that helps us understand what we just read. It turns out that in the um, middle part of the first century, there were a number of famines. And particularly, these famines, some of them hit the Holy Land in the city of Jerusalem. Remember, this, this church in Corinth is, is, is often in the old sort of Greek empire, off, off, off far away from the, the Holy Land. The great tension that existed in the early church was the tension between Jew and Greek. The inclusion of the, the Gentiles, the Greeks, the, the nations other than the Hebrews, into the church of God was a very difficult thing for those raised under the Hebrew law to understand. Uh, it led to most of the conflicts we read about in the New Testament. And here at this point in time, we discover that a predominantly Gentile group of churches find themselves in a position of having plenty, while the predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem finds themselves in a period of lack. And despite the difficulty of the relationships between the the, the Gentiles and the Jews within the New Testament church, despite the kind of difficulty that may have existed between the Apostle Paul and the Apostles in the city of Jerusalem, during this period of time, a collection was taken, at least one, from among the churches of the diaspora to provide for the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. Isn't that, isn't that magnificent? Like, just, just imagine, imagine if our church was just constantly viewed as suspect by all the other churches in our region because we were just a bit too multicultural. That's the kind of vibe, right? And that we find ourselves in a position of being able to bless them in the name of Jesus, and we take it. Not for selfish gain, but just because of the overflow of a glad and generous heart. Um, Paul, Paul is writing in this letter to include the church in Corinth in this collection, which has already been taken, um, so generously amongst the Macedonian churches, which are in a, a different place to, to Corinth. And you can hear a little bit of the heavy-handedness of his tone in writing to Corinth because that church has been something of an inconvenience to him over the last couple of years. Um, but now let's give our attention to the churches in Macedonia who are being spoken about here. The Gentiles providing for the Jews who have treated their faith as suspect. Isn't that just the sweetest thing in God's providence? How unifying, how much reconciliation took place during the churches as a result of, of this ministry? One of the impressive details that we see when we read about the Macedonians is that they gave generously, not out of rich abundance, but out of their poverty. 2 Corinthians 8.2. For in a severe test of affliction, they're being persecuted. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty 
have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. These, these are not the elite of the elite. These aren't millionaires and billionaires. These are ordinary people living a, a very difficult life who, who see the great need, who think to themselves, I don't have everything, but I've got food, which is more than they can say in Jerusalem. And their love and poverty have mingled together, and the result was generosity. Isn't that incredible? For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Their gift was so generous. Their financial gift was so generous that they were going to miss out on some things. It hurt to give this. This wasn't the the leftover in the budget. This was a change to the budget. We're not getting the flashy jet that Matt needs. Right? We're not we're not getting the the nice new car when the like whatever they had then, the nice new camel that hasn't been put through the eye of the needle, so it's still good. Begging us earnestly, verse four, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Can you, can you imagine it? The, 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 is it Titus who's collecting this offering? He's, he's, he's rocked up at this church in Macedonia. He's like, oh, you guys are doing it tough. You don't, you don't need to contribute. And they're like, how dare you take away from us the privilege of participating in the meeting of the needs of the saints. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves, and here it is, first to the Lord, and then by the will of the Lord to us. We are worshippers. We believe God would have us do this. Take the money. Isn't it beautiful? It's a marvelous transformation has taken place in these people, and they are an example for us to follow. Whenever we see humans living like this, it grabs our attention, doesn't it? It's different to what is normal. That's not how people live. It, it pokes at us uncomfortably is what it does. Think of the, the widow's offering that Jesus brought our attention to. A small amount given, but given from a place of poverty, and in the words of Christ, more precious, more precious than the much given by someone else. That lady was free in a way that so many of us are not. She was not ruled by her money, but to her it was a tool to be used for the glory of God. And so we have to ask the question, what is it that has to happen in the human heart for us to have that kind of attitude towards our wealth? What, what has to happen for us to, to, to be so free from the tyranny of wealth? We see the motivation of the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians Chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And here it is. It turns out that this change which needs to happen in each and every one of us is connected to worship. Worship, like all the other parts of our lives as Christians, it turns out transforming your attitudes towards wealth is a product of gospel transformation. We see Jesus being what we are not, don't we? 
in his incarnation. The sovereign of heaven, the one who made all things, stepped into this world in flesh like us, but not into a palace where we would expect him to arrive, but into a barn. He took the form of a servant, not of a master. He lived a life of poverty and simplicity. He died in our place and for our sins on the cross, not his sins. He paid a debt that wasn't his. He became poor that you and I might become rich. Not materially rich, that's not the the goal. In heaven it might be the goal, I don't know, probably is. Spiritually rich. Rich in the glory of the kingdom. Rich in salvation. Rich in God's blessings. We as worshippers, this is the point, we come to see our stuff the same way that Jesus does. The same way that Jesus does. We see everything that we have as existing to serve God's purposes in this world. Why am I here? Why, why do I have things? Why do I have a bank account and a house and a couch? To serve the living God. To serve the living God. Because Jesus, who has shown me not only an example to live, has redeemed me. And I'm becoming like him. I'm becoming like him. The attitude that Jesus has to stuff, that's the attitude I want to have to stuff. I want my stuff to be used in such a way that I let go of it and it goes into the world to work God's blessing and reaps an eternal reward. Gospel transformation leads us, leads us from seeing our things as being ultimately self-serving to a life of being able to be selfless. I just need to point out that Jeremy snuck in at the back and he's getting baptized tonight, so that's really exciting. Um, you feel that? You feel that change? Now, the Christians in the room are sitting there going, I get you, I get you, right? Like, yes, I would like to be like Jesus. That is the goal of my life. I'm already convinced. Give me, give me some more. Give me some, give me some practicals on, on what it might look like day to day for me to live out what it is that Christ has won for me. I'm glad you asked. Got a few examples. Let's get practical. But first, let's mention that this moment in time makes the issue that we are discussing right now just a little bit more salty, urgent, hot than it usually is, isn't it? We are all about to start facing challenges, financially speaking, that we are not used to facing. Okay? Like last week, we talked about making the, the best use of our time. We talked about how we're, we're all facing challenges that are new to us, which makes the issue of making the best use of our time just a bit more complicated than it usually is. We have to rethink some things, have to reevaluate some things. In the same way, the current circumstances in the world are going to make serving God with your money a new challenge. Those of you who've been doing this for a lifetime, it's not going to be as simple tomorrow as it was yesterday. It would seem... If, if the news reports I read are, are, are correct, and it's, it's always difficult to, to predict the future, but it seems that things are about to get worse before they get better, financially speaking, for us all. Costs are up. Inflation is a thing. It's true the globe over. We are leaving behind a time of plenty, and we are all going to have to learn how to be gladly generous in a time of scarcity. If you were able to be generous without it hurting before, you're not going to be able to do that going, going forwards. It's going to hurt. 
Good news. We're in good company when we live like this. Our brothers and sisters throughout time have faced these same challenges. These passages, all of them, that we will read today and have read today, were written in a time when the church was a persecuted minority on the fringe of society. If it was true for them, it's true for us. Okay, let's consider some big principles, and then we'll get really, really specific at the end. Here's the first big principle. If you would like to please God with your stuff, this is one you need to know. Number one, you should work and earn as a responsible adult. It needs to be said. It needs to be said. Salvation, or as I've written it here, salvation, which is probably a bit of a Freudian slip, results in a Christian work ethic. Even when we look back to the beginning of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had a job. Contributing to the world in a positive way, using your, your, your time and your effort to, to, to work in a vocation, is part of God's original created order and absolutely is part of a life of worship. Now, please understand, you have to, you have to understand what these words mean properly. Keeping house and raising children counts, even if it doesn't pay. You are working in a vocation. But the ordinary flow of life means that we work as if for the Lord. This is, this is usual for us. Saved people have this as a goal of our maturity. Yes, people go through times of difficulty and illness that make this difficult, if not impossible. This is not meant to heap a guilt on you. Those people should receive compassion and generosity from us. Genuine illness can keep you away from work. But laziness is not compatible with the life of faith. How, how much so? Check out this verse from 2 Thessalonians 3.10, and it doesn't get much stronger than this. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, this is, this is not saying Christians aren't generous to people who have no food, do you understand? But if anyone was able to work, was not willing, and the willingness is what matters here, was not willing to work, don't, don't give that person generosity. Give that person a job. Christians should work and earn as responsible adults. That's part of a Christian morality. It's part of God's created intention in this world. I suspect it's part of what we're doing in heaven. I'm pretty certain of it, that we will be productive in the kingdom of God. Secondly, we often come to the question, um, we often ask ourselves the question, how much of my money should I give to God versus how much should I keep for myself? Which brings up the historical issue of tithing. If you're not familiar with this, um, it's a practice. Certainly many of us here use this. Elise and I go, go this way. Um, it has been normal for a very long time amongst the churches for the members of a church to give a tithe, which is a tenth of their income to their church as a way of kind of measuring how much should I be giving to God. It's not a terrible principle. But... We have to be careful with it because we must not make it a law by which we judge others. The principle of tithing comes with a few risks. First, if we take tithing and we make it a law, we may crush the helpless. We may crush the helpless. There are periods of time where giving a tenth of your income isn't a responsible thing to do. You, you, you have some needs which are more urgent than the needs of the church that you need to be taken care of. Um, th there are those of you who will be married to someone who does not share your faith. 
And every now and then an unbelieving spouse is hostile to the idea of, of religious giving. You should honor them and, and not do this thing. Find some other ways to be generous. There are other ways to do it. Maybe they're going to be okay with you taking on a sponsor kid or showing hospitality. We run the risk of crushing the helpless. We run a second risk with tithing. Taking tithing and, and turning it into a law runs the risk of encouraging joyless giving. Joyless giving. I was talking to a, a family member one time who told me about their friend who would tithe a tenth of their income to the cent. No more, no less. Can you imagine being the church banker? I don't ever do this. Maybe some of you do this. I don't ever look at the church bank accounts. I'm speaking from ignorance. It's like, my tithe this week is $162.42. It's very specific. Yeah. Rounded, rounded down or up for the cent, do you reckon? Joyless giving. I don't want to give this. My heart's not in this. It's the rules. Cent. Actually, for, for this very reason, um, I, I don't have my tithe set up as an automatic deduction from my bank account. I manually do it every week. Why? Because it's the point. Because it's an offering. Because it comes from the heart. Lastly, the practice of tithing runs the risk of limiting giving. There are some of you who are in the opposite, in the opposite corner, where giving 10% of your income won't cause a ripple. And if you think that only 10% of your wealth is to be used for God and the rest of it is to be used for you, you're out of balance. The, the, the Macedonians were giving <laughs> out of their poverty. You understand? It hurts. This, 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 this 10, it was 10% was probably a, a lot less than what they were giving in this instance. No, rather, third principle, the principle of, of, of Christian wealth is this, glad generosity. Glad generosity. If you remember nothing else out of today, this is the most useful thing. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There are two parts to a healthy Christian attitude towards your wealth and using it for God. The first is gladness, cheerfulness, and the second is generosity. And here's what they mean. Gladness means that your offerings to God are given out of the overflow of a worshipping heart for joy, not under compulsion. It's very important that it not be under compulsion. There's a Bible verse which says it should not be under compulsion or even reluctant. Have you ever wondered why does the cheerfulness matter? Like, like stop and think about it for a second. If I'm going to give God $1,000 and I do it, God, have this money. I just, I just pray that you use it well, grow your kingdom, meet people's needs. It's yours. Just because I love you, Lord, use my things for you. And person B gives their $1,000 at the same time. Well, person A is giving it and everyone's going to be judging me. So I'm going to give the $1,000 as well. I don't really want to do it. The Lord gets the same offering from both people, does he not? Why does the cheerful, like, shouldn't, surely the dollars matters more than the cheerfulness? No. Brothers and sisters, God does not need your money. He owns all things. 
Every hair on your head has been numbered by him. Your days are in his hands. It is not about meeting God's needs. It is about worship. It's not about being reluctant or compelled. God loves a cheerful giver. Would you like to please God with your stuff? Give to him cheerfully. It pleases him. That's the point of the whole thing. Offerings to God are about worship. The second principle is generosity. Give until it hurts. Sacrificial giving. If your giving never hurts you or means that you have to go without anything, have you really been generous? We see the story of Cain and Abel in the beginning of Genesis. They both give an offering to God. It wasn't money. It was, it was the, they were farmers. And they gave their produce to God. Cain, who was to murder his brother, whose, far, whose heart was far from God, just gave God the leftovers. And Abel, who was a worshiper, gave God his first fruits, his best stuff. The stuff that would sell for the most at market. The stuff that would make him wealthy. Sacrificial giving. Jesus, who was rich, became poor for you. That you might become rich. Let's live like that. That's a good principle, isn't it? Sacrificial, I'm sorry, glad, generosity. This is how we live. Now let's get really, really specific. Really, really specific. Okay, I'm in. I believe you. Glad generosity is how we are going to live in light of the gospel, in light of what Jesus has done for us. What things do I give my money to in order to please God? I have a list. There's a lot of things on this list. This is not an exhaustive list. You can find other things. But let me give you a survey. We'll, we'll finish here today, by the way. When you do these things with your wealth, you please God, Christians, if they are an act of faith. All of these are the overflow of faith. First of all, we serve God when we use our wealth to provide for our family. Are you glad that's on the list? I am. 1 Timothy 5.8 says this, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We make sure that our kids have food and clothing. We make sure that our spouse has enough. We make sure they have a roof over their head. That is part of your service to God. There's a second slide, by the way. Uh, next. Uh, you can use your wealth to support your church and its ministries. We see this in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, which says this. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Next. You serve the Lord, you bring Him gladness, Christians, when you use your wealth to support the needs of your brothers and your sisters here in this church. 1 John 3.17 says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need... And yet, brother's a key word there, right? So he says, brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Brothers and sisters, if there are people who call this church home, who are going without the needs of life because we were unwilling to help them, we cease to be a Christian church. Next, you please God 
when you use your wealth to support Christians in need elsewhere in the world. Galatians 6, chapter 10 says this. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Isn't this the attitude we, attitude we see in the, in the Macedonian churches towards the church in Jerusalem? They're in need. They're our brothers and sisters. Here's our stuff. Also, Galatians 6.10 tells us to love our neighbor. We please God when we use our wealth to be kind to those who are not of the household of faith. The Good Samaritan principle. We please God when we use our wealth to show hospitality to strangers. Hebrews 13.2 tells us, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Showing hospitality, hospitality is, is, is an important thing for us to stand. It is welcoming the stranger. Welcoming the stranger. So having, having your friends from church over for lunch doesn't count as biblical hospitality. Having the new person over from church who you don't know yet counts as biblical hospitality. Use your property to show hospitality to the people who are, who are new or on the fringe. Another one. We worship God by paying our taxes. Well, at least something good comes of them, right? Romans 13, 7 says, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. The next verse teaches us another principle about money. Live within your means. This is actually an act of worship. To live within your means. Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Debt can put you in slavery to a master other than Jesus. It's a very good way to find that money has become your God. Another one. Do not covet. Now, this is, I've got a negative, this is the only sort of straight up negative one in here. It's useful though, isn't it? It lives hand in hand with, with, with living within your means. We're told in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. We do not assess our life through the, venue, through the lens of comparison with what our neighbors have and we don't. If the point of life is wealth accumulation, then your neighbor's goods are proof that you are failing. You're losing the race. Keeping up with the Joneses is, is, is the meaning of life. Now we've been set free from that, brothers and sisters. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all I need, is our new attitude. And if all that sounds just a little bit scary, let me just read you one last Bible passage and then I'll pray to finish. The last, the last thing that we need to do in order to serve the Lord with our wealth, please God with our wealth, is to consider the lilies. Consider the lilies. I'll explain. Well, I'll let Jesus explain from the Sermon on the Mount. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed or dressed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you a little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, it means the unbelieving Gentiles, by the way, seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. Um, We thank you because it teaches us about you and who you are and what you've done for us, Lord. It showed us the way to salvation. It it reveals Christ and all his glory to us. Teaches our hands how to worship him. Lord, we also thank you for your word particularly because it teaches us to be wise. It equips us for every good work. Lord, the the issue of of being worshippers with our possessions is one that comes up every day of our life. Uh, And ill-considered, it's a part of our life which we would base on the world's attitudes. We would live the same life that the unbelieving world lives were it not for you having given us your wisdom. We pray that your word would have its full effect in us. Would you make us into a different kind of people? A kind of people who are utterly different to the rest of this world precisely because we have become like Jesus. He is wonderful, our God. The the, the way he lived is utterly praiseworthy from beginning to end. And we pray that his earthly attitude towards wealth would become our earthly attitude towards wealth. Help us to see, our God, our whole life as belonging to you, not as a begrudging service, not under coercion, but cheerfully. Would we serve you with gladness? Lord, what could we give you that would be too much? What, what, what fear should we harbor when you have so graciously promised your wonderful provision? We pray that we would be a church filled with worship, first and foremost, with love, second only to that. And Lord, with the generous abundance of graciousness that flows in the wake of your redeeming work. We pray that in Jesus' name.